to the second coming and see what that's going to mean. So today, this passage we're looking at gives us a really clear picture of what the second coming is going to look like. So I want to take a few minutes to first just, just kind of unpack the text a little bit and just see what the second coming looks like. What is this passage saying about the nature of the second coming? And then I want to do something maybe a little different. Instead of maybe directly talking about application, I kind of want to talk about how it makes us feel because it makes me feel pretty weird, and I'm not sure that's a good thing. And I, I think it maybe makes you feel the same way, and I think that's something we should think about and think about what that means. So kind of getting into it here, I actually want to start by looking at verse 7. Um, we'll look at verse 5 and 6 in 11 and 12. I think they're almost the same thought, bookending the meat of this text here. So we're going to start with verse 7. And what verse 7 shows is that the second coming will look different than the first coming. Just on a fundamental level, the second coming is going to look a lot different than the first coming. So let's reread verse 7. And to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with the mighty angels in flaming fire. So the first coming is marked by humility. It's marked by Jesus condescending. A really classic good passage for this is actually Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. And that passage reads, Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What that passage is saying is that God, the creator of the universe, condescended. He came to earth as a man, but not just any man. He came to earth as a poor man, not just any poor man. He came to earth in the body of a poor man who was born to a single woman, and he grew up in a poor town in a poor region of a poor country. That's what Jesus did, and that's what the first coming looked like. And in fact, he followed obedience. He followed condescension until he had a shameful death. But that's not the end of the story. The first coming was not an end unto itself. It was Jesus earning something. It was Jesus working towards something. So the first coming, we see condescension. But in verse 7, this points to what the second coming is going to look like. And the second coming looks very different. It doesn't look like a poor man dying a shameful death like Jesus did the first time. It's Jesus coming back as a conquering king. The second coming is going to be about Jesus' glory fully revealed. And we have a picture of that when Jesus leaves the earth, right? In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, as Jesus is ascending, he looks down to his disciples. And he says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. Or a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into the heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So we have this picture of the ascension, right? So Jesus' time on earth is after he's been resurrected. He spends 40 days with the disciples, ministering to them, preparing them for the ministry they're, they're about to do. And then he's taken up into heaven. And this is what, what the angels say as Jesus is going up into heaven into the clouds. They say, men of Galilee. Why are you looking up into the clouds? you got work to do. you got stuff to do. And don't worry, this Jesus is going to come back, and it's going to look a lot like what he left. It's going to look like him being in his full glory in the clouds with the angels. And that's what we see in verse 7, right? 
looking at the end of verse 7. Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming power. So the second coming is about Jesus' glory fully revealed. And then going back to that verse in Philippians, right? So we looked at Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 through 8, about how that talked about Jesus' humility. Well, verses 9 and 10 point to what the first coming accomplished. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are on earth and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have the first coming, which is about condescension. We have the second coming, which is about glory fully revealed and about Jesus winning with the first coming accomplished. But the passage in 2 Thessalonians keep going. This second coming, it's not just about being different than the first coming. It's not just about Jesus' glory being fully revealed. It's ultimately about judgment, which doesn't seem very Christmassy. But that's what it's about. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So, that's kind of a scary picture. And it makes me a little uncomfortable. Verse 8 says, dealing out retribution. Who has the ESV Bible? I'm sure most of you do. Tim, what does the ESV say? Eight. Vengeance. Yeah, stop there. So the ESV actually takes it a step further. It uses this word, vengeance, which is kind of an intense word. So you, you know, you look back up at verse five and it says only just, it's only just for God to judge them. And you're kind of like, I mean, I don't love the idea of God judging people, but verse five says it's just, so it's a fair amount of judgment. It's not an active amount of judgment, but then you get down to verse eight and it says that God is, is dealing out retribution, is vengeful. And it seems scary, and it seems like a lot. And it almost makes you think, does, do we see this in other places in the Bible? And believe it or not, we do. Um, so a, a passage I found, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, this is uh, Moses singing a song of praise to God. He's talking about the good things about God. And, and verse 35 says, uh, this is Moses talking about God, quoting God, where God says, Vengeance is mine, and retribution in due time their foot will slip, for the day of their calamity is near, and the impending things are hastening upon them. So in the Old Testament, we have God saying, vengeance is mine, vengeance is of the Lord. Why is he saying that? Well, it, with Moses, he's praising God because he's, he's defending his people, right? People have done wrong things to Israel, and God is saying, like, I didn't miss that. I didn't see that didn't happen. I'm going to take vengeance. Um, and that's part of what's going on in this passage. But also, part of what's going on is that God is avenging his gospel. He's avenging those who have rejected his son, right? At the end of verse eight, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So then the next question may be, man, that's kind of unfair. That's kind of unfair for God to avenge everyone who does not accept the gospel, who does not believe the word. What if they didn't hear a clear gospel presentation in their life? Or what if they they heard one, but it was really bad? Or what if their mom was a jerk? You know, we can think of so many excuses. But, I, you know, if you look at Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 20, there, there's no room for these excuses. I'll go ahead and, and read the passage. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. What Paul is saying in Romans chapter 1 is that we all know there's a God. If you look at out the world, we, we know there's a God. We know there's a boss. We know there's someone we're accountable to. So much of culture is about plugging our ears and blinding our eyes to that, trying to pretend like it's not there. But we know it's there. So everyone is accountable because everyone knows. God naturally reveals himself in nature. Not enough for us to be saved, but enough to where we know there's something we're doing wrong. Um, so because of that, everyone is accountable. And, and that's what Paul is saying. And so when Jesus comes back, there's going to be these two groups. There's going to be that first group, that verse 8 and 9 group, the group that rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ, either actively or passively. But if you look at Romans 1, everyone actively rejects the gospel. Everyone actively blinds their eyes to God. So you have that group. But then what about those who are in Christ? That's in verse 10. When he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. So we have this picture of two groups. Jesus comes. He comes in glory, and he comes in judgment. He comes to fully realize his kingdom. There's those who have rejected the gospel. That's verse 8 and 9. And now there's those who have accepted the gospel, verse 10. To us, we're going to glorify God in that day. In that day, we're going to look to God. We're going to see our king coming, and we're going to be like, this is it. This is the day we've been looking for. This is a really merity illustration, but... Have any, you, most of you guys have seen Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, right? So there's the scene where they're holed up in Helm's Deep. And they're all going to die because the orc army's there. And the orc army's going to kill them. It's really bleak. And you basically have this thing where, like, two of the leader of men are like, all right, you know, we're just going to fight to the death. And we're going to die with honor. But then they see the light. And there's Gandalf with this crazy big army. And Gandalf comes down the mountain and they kick all the orc butt. And it's great. And so that's how Jesus is going to come, in a sense. Um, we're stuck in Helm's Deep, and we're all going to die. And then Jesus is coming with angels' armies, right? He's not coming passively. He's not coming in the form of a humble man. Now he's coming full-on, full-power Jesus. I'm here. I'm making all things new. And I'm, I'm, I'm making things right. And if you were in that scene, if you were at the Battle of Helm's Deep, and you saw Gandalf coming over the hill with his army you're going to have one or two reactions. You're either going to be super stoked because Gandalf and his army are here to save the day, or you're an orc and you're going to, they stop everything they're doing and they look up because they know they're about to die. So you're either a man or, or an orc in that scenario. Um, and that's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. There's not a middle road. You're one of the two. You've either rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ and you realize it's time to pay the piper, or you're in Christ and you're going to marvel at the wonderful sight of Jesus coming to realize his kingdom, to take what's his. So that's great and exciting and, in a sense, not super Christmassy. And I don't know about you. I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about that to a certain extent. Um, because Jesus is coming, and he's going to judge everyone. And that's scary to think about. And he's going to bring wrath, and he's coming with a sword. And those who have rejected him will be eternally tormented. And I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about that. 
And I think the best way to start is to see how the Thessalonians were supposed to feel about that when they, when they received this passage. So let's look at verses 5 and 6 and 11 and 12. Because and, I think this is, these are kind of the same thought stream and they bookend what we just talked about. So verses 5 and 6. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And then verses 11 and 12. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So in both kind of couplets of verses, if you will, there's this idea of being counted worthy of the gospel. What does that mean? What is Paul talking about? I thought we were saved by grace. How can we be counted worthy? Well, I think the answer is it's standing in the face of affliction. And this is an idea you see throughout the New Testament. By standing up to the face of the affliction, we count ourselves worthy of the gospel and we further identify with Christ. Um, just kind of jotting down a few verses where this is coming up. Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 17. The Spirit himself teaches with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Uh, another one, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. And another one, Colossians 1, 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, filling up, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So what all these verses kind of come together to paint a picture of is that by partaking in sufferings, we're partaking in the union of, with Christ we have. Because when we're saved, we're, we're ultimately united with Christ. And it's just this idea of we, we become the body. When we talk about the church as the body, we're talking about this idea of union with Christ. So when we're united with Christ and we're following Christ's example, we're united with one who died a horrific death and was persecuted while on earth. And we're modeling our life after someone who died a horrific death and was persecuted a lot on earth. So it would stand to reason that we're going to share in some of those same deals. The world is going to hate us because it hated him. And if we're truly reflecting him, then we're truly going to be hated by the world. And there's going to be consequences for that. So when we share in those consequences... When we share in that affliction, we're sharing in Christ, and we're counting ourselves worthy of the call. So that, that's what Paul's talking about here. So this passage, this idea of God's coming judgment, it was meant to be a comfort for the Thessalonians. This was meant to be like, hey, guys, I, I know things are pretty hard right now, and I know people are hating you because you love me, but don't worry. I'm going to come, and, and I'm going to avenge you, and I'm going to make things right. And that was, that was supposed to be a comfort to them. Uh, but I don't think when we read it, it's a comfort to us. I think when we read it, we don't feel comforted. We feel scared. Or maybe we want to downplay this part of Jesus. Um, we, we want to kind of push this to the side because it's not, it's not as palatable. Um, but to the Thessalonians people, it was, it was a comfort. So my question that kind of came up when I was studying this passage is why is that the case? Why would, um, I joked about this with Ash, but in all seriousness, if you told me to pick any passage in the Bible to preach, I would never pick this one. I would never pick a passage about God's judgment. Why is that? 
why am I so scared to talk about God's judgment? Why maybe as a church are we scared to talk about God's judgment? I think there's two reasons for that, two reasons why maybe we don't connect to this passage the way the Thessalonians did. I think point one is we have a curated view of Jesus, and point two, we don't deal with affliction, at least in this context. So curated view of Jesus. Um, so think of the idea of like a museum curator, right? So what a museum curator does is let's say they get a shipment of art from Europe, and it's full of all these artifacts. The curator walks on there and is like, I like that one, I hate that one, I like that one, I like that one, send back the rest. And they choose the good and they leave the bad. So you don't have the full selection of art, you only have the curated pieces that the curator chose. That's great when you're talking about art or music or tacos. It's not great when you're talking about the biblical revelation of Jesus. We can't curate Jesus. We have to take Jesus as the Bible presents him. I think a really good, clear example of curating Jesus is um, by the theologian Ricky Bobby in his film, Talladega Nights. Um, it's a great theological masterpiece. But there's this scene where Ricky Bobby is saying grace, and he says, dear six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus. And his wife says, Ricky, you know Jesus grew up. He wasn't a baby. And, and Ricky lays down one of my favorite lines. He says... I like Christmas Jesus best. When you say grace, you can say grace to grown-up Jesus, teenage Jesus, bearded Jesus, or whichever Jesus you want. And then Cal Norton Jr. cuts in and he says, I like to picture my Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt. He says, I'm serious, but I'm here to party. I like to party, so I like my Jesus to party. It's ridiculous, right? We laugh and it's funny, but also we do that. Like, maybe not so egregiously, but we do it. Um, a smarter person example of this is the Jesus Seminar from about 20 years ago, where a bunch of Harvard professors got together, and they decided to go through the Bible and basically decide what Jesus actually said and what they don't think he said. And guess what? At the end of the whole thing, Jesus looked like a Harvard professor. And when Cal Norton Jr. talks about Jesus, guess what? Jesus looks a whole lot like Cal Norton Jr. or Ricky Bobby or Christmas Jesus. So whenever we look at Jesus... We can't set the terms of engagement. We can't set how we view Jesus. We have to let the Bible set how we view Jesus. Um, so when we look at Jesus and we accentuate the parts of Jesus that um, maybe grew up poor and walked around and said wise things and was vaguely nonviolent and really made the religious people mad, and if that's all we focus on, that's going to seem really cool in 2018. And that's going to make us seem hip and that's going to make us seem with it. And it's really tempting to only focus on those parts of Jesus. But if your view of Jesus does not have room for Jesus to come back in judgment, if your view of Jesus does not have room for holiness, and if your view of Jesus, if it doesn't compute with this picture we see here, then you're wrong. And your view of Jesus is too curated and too narrow. So I think part of the reason we don't like this passage, or maybe we would be, tend to avoid it, is because it bumps up against the view of Jesus we've chosen for ourselves rather than letting the Bible set how we view Jesus. Um, so I, I think that that's kind of a key thing here. And, and I, I think it comes from a good place generally. I know for me, um, there's two mistakes you can make with the judgment of God. The first mistake is you're preoccupied with it. And we've all seen that, right? The fire and brimstone teach preachers, the people who only talk about who's going to hell and who's not and nothing else. But the opposite mistake is just as bad. 
and that's we become so scared of becoming the first kind of preacher or the first kind of Christian, we never think about God's wrath. We never think about God's judgment. We never think about the second coming. And that's an equally grave mistake. We can't fall into either camp. We have to let the Bible as a whole set how we view God, set how we view Jesus, and not just focus on certain spots. So I think because maybe Jesus behaving this way does not fit our view of how Jesus should behave, we struggle with this passage. And I think that flows into the second thing, where we don't really deal with affliction the same way they did. Um, why? I think there's a few reasons. One, generally, America is probably a more accepting culture than Rome. Um, Rome was not an accepting culture. That You had to pay uh, tribute to, to the emperor, and if you didn't, you'd probably die. We don't have anything like that today, but I think a deeper, deeper reason is that we have that curated view of God. We have a tendency to only maybe broadcast or show off the parts of God and the parts of Jesus that, are, that play well in the world, that are uh, palpable to the world around us. We want Jesus to be as popular as possible and maybe not authentically what the Bible says. The problem with that is we're lying to ourselves and we're lying to everyone else. Jesus never came to be popular by everyone. Luke 12, 53, Jesus says, They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. The point is everybody's against everybody. The gospel of Jesus Christ it, has a tenet, it unites people, but it also divides people and divides family. It unites those that are in Christ, but those that aren't in Christ, if you're actually portraying the gospel, will hate those who are in Christ. The world should hate you. And if the world doesn't hate you, then maybe you need to evaluate if you're actually following Jesus or if you're following a version of Jesus that makes maybe more cultural sense. Um, and that's me too. Like, I, I do this too. It's really easy to... Um, Maybe only focus on certain, certain issues, biblical issues, because these biblical issues may, it may be convenient to believe a certain thing, but inconvenient to believe another. So you, don't ju you just don't talk about that. And, and I want to push us and, and encourage us to have a fully formed view of God. Um, and a view of God that, yes, he did, Jesus did break down social and cultural boundaries and bring a gospel that could save everyone. But he's also coming back, and he's also going to judge those that reject him for eternity. So we need to have a view of Jesus that's both. And if we have a view of Jesus that's both, the world's going to hate us. And if we're having a more full view of God, and we're in a world that hates us, then this passage is going to make a lot more sense to us. Because we're going to then be having afflictions, and persecution, and bad things happening to us, and we're going to want to lash out. And then in that moment, this passage can come to us and say, I know you want to lash out. I know you're being afflicted and, and you want to fight for yourself, but that's not your job. That's my job. So don't worry. I'm coming back and I'm going to take care of this. Because that's ultimately what Paul is saying here. So kind of to, to, to wrap this up, to, to put a bow on it, um, this verse can, can affect us on a few levels. The first question I think this verse should push you to ask yourself is when Jesus' glory is revealed, which group are you going to be in? Are you going to be in the group that's scared and knows that you've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are you going to be in the group that's marveling at God's glory and glorifying in Jesus' coming? Those of us that are in the second group, those of us that are in Christ, are we portraying a full view of God to the world around us? Is the Jesus we're proclaiming, is there, 
is he a Jesus that judges also? Or have we diminished the qualities of Jesus that are inconvenient and not palpable and, and don't play well in the world around us? Because I, I think part of the reason we hide those parts of Jesus we don't like, we say it's maybe out of love and not being judgmental, but I think it's out of self-preservation. I think we're scared to deal with affliction and we're scared to deal with inconvenience even. Um, so because of that, we downplay these things about God and then we say it's because we love our neighbor, but it's not. It's because we're scared. It's because we don't trust God. So those of us that are in, in Christ, we need to trust God and know that anything that comes bad to us because we're proclaiming the full gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has our back. Um, maybe not in this life. Maybe we'll go try to proclaim the gospel to an unreached people group and we'll die before we hit the shore. That might happen to us. But if it does, we know that Jesus is still going to come and make it right. So yeah, let's bow our heads. Dear God, thank you for this day, and, and God, thank you for your word. And as this Christmas time, as, as we reflect on you coming to bring grace and love and peace, help us to, to glorify that and, and magnify that, God, and, and be excited about that. But also know that that's not the whole story, that you're coming back, and you're coming back as a conquering ruler. And God, just help our view of you to have room for both and to not be so preoccupied with one we forget the other. And um, it's in your name we pray. Amen.